The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. Good morning, America. Welcome, Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTUV, WXYZ people, and anybody else I may have missed to the Sons of Liberty Radio Show here on Red State Talk Radio. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina, the editor at Sons of Liberty Media.com. And for our Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warned you about. I hold to the book, the Bible, as the authoritative word of God. Glad that you guys have joined us here this morning. If you'd like to check us out online, please do so, sonsoflibertyradio.com and sonsoflibertymedia.com. In fact, if you want to watch the video portion of this show, that's right, you can see the face that's made for radio right there on sonsoflibertymedia.com. Just scroll down and we're going live right there on the right side of the page. If you want to watch us on any other platforms, you can do that as well. My Twitter account is FPPTM. We go out there live on the video feed, as well as my Periscope account, Setting Brush Fires. We're on Facebook at Bradley Dean SOL. Our YouTube channel is B. Dean Sons of Liberty. And beforeitsnews.com, they have us up there every weekday morning, 6 a.m. Eastern Time. Saturdays, we're on at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. And then 3 p.m. in the afternoon, Monday through Saturday, Bradley's on on beforeitsnews.com. And then finally, our video, we have it going out on dlive.tv at The Sons of Liberty. And then if you want to follow us on a number of other social media platforms, Spreely, Gab, MeWe, Minds, and USA.life, you can do that by looking us up there at Sons of Liberty or Sons of Liberty Media. Now, with that said, we're not going to take any phone calls today. Uh, We've got a special guest on the line here, and I just want to give him a a proper introduction, and then we're going to get into today's topic. Uh, Andy Kaufman, MD, is a natural healing consultant, inventor, public speaker, forensic uh, psychiatrist, and expert witness. He completed his psychiatric training at Duke University Medical Center, after graduating from the Medical University of South Carolina, see, he was from here too, and has a BS from MIT in molecular biology. He's conducted and published original research and lectured, supervised, and mentored medical students, residents, and fellows in all psychiatric specialties. He has been qualified as an expert witness in local, state, and federal courts. He has held leadership positions in academic medicine and professional organizations, and he ran a startup company to develop a medical device he invented and patented, and uh, well, welcome to the Sons of Liberty, Dr. Kaufman. We're glad to have you. Oh, thank you so much, Tim, and uh, please call me Andy. Okay, I will call you Andy. Uh, I'm going to get people on here because before the show, I didn't uh, put you up just so they see who you are. Uh, I'm pretty sure a lot of people are familiar with you from, uh, I know a couple of articles that I've referenced, and also from some of the interviews. You've been interviewed by Brian Rose at London Real. Uh, Brian Young with um, High Impact Flicks, 
uh, our health and wellness expert on Saturday, Kate Shimrani, which I just finished watching just a little while ago. And the information that you're bringing out uh, concerning the stuff that we've gone through in the past few months here, I mean, the lies, I, I don't know a nice, there's not a nice way to say the things that we're in, the lies that we've been inundated with. You were one of the guys following Kate. Uh, my first interview with Kate was several months ago. They pulled it from YouTube like months after it had been up. But uh, that, I think that was because they took her down. You were just backing up all the stuff she was saying, and then you were adding to it. And I said, oh, we got to get this, because this was the, the uh, interview you did with the Brian with High Impact uh, Flicks. I said, we got to get this guy on. So tell us a little bit, just a little introduction of yourself. I mean, I've given you the, sort of the bio, but just the man. Uh, Andy, tell us, tell the, uh, the audience a little bit about yourself, and then how you came to understand what's going on here that we're being told about, about viruses and COVID-19 and all this, how you came to understand it's, we're just, the narrative that we're told is just not true. Yeah, well, um, it, there certainly is a story to it. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm a regular guy like everyone else. Um, I just happened to uh, study some advanced scientific areas and develop a certain type of expertise in my career. But, you know, I've always uh, been uh, really motivated by uh, justice and wisdom. And uh, when I've seen injustices, uh, I've tried my best to uh, stop them and not participate in them. And um, as I began my career in medicine, I began to see uh, things uh, turning out that, that I thought were not right. Like, for example, I saw uh, the overuse of civil commitment, which is when a psychiatrist is expected to take away someone's freedom and force them to stay in the hospital against their will. Um, and this really troubled me, and I tried to do something about it. And, of course, it uh, got me in a little bit of trouble myself. But then as I kept practicing medicine and I saw that uh, people were not getting better with the psychiatric drugs that I was expected to prescribe, I started really becoming skeptical and questioning things. And this was a process, you know, that evolved over years. But eventually I reached a point where I didn't even feel comfortable continuing that kind of work and uh, began taking everyone off their medications. I then, uh, you know, started looking deeper at other aspects of medicine and even biological science and came to realize that so many things that uh, were taught and assumed to be true are actually based upon extremely shaky evidence, if any solid evidence at all. And um, they seem to have created a system that is motivated by things like uh, profit and control rather than really helping people get well. And I was uh, undergoing this kind of personal transformation and uh, spiritual growth uh, when this pandemic hit in December in China. And uh, right from the beginning, I was a little bit skeptical because of the you know, extreme measures they took there uh, to take away liberties. And I know that you know, they have a different uh, expectation about freedom in China than we do in the United States. But as I started to investigate things, I was, uh, you know, came to know that uh, things are not as we've been told in terms of this uh, supposed pandemic illness. And uh, the more I looked, the more I found out uh, that uh, things were have really been screwed up. And that's kind of what led me on the, the present course that I've been uh, since almost the beginning uh, of this crisis. Well, now you, you've pointed out a lot of things, and there are so many questions that I had when I was listening to you. I was like, oh, okay, well, what about this? What about that? Because 
when I was younger, I was taught when you get the flu that, uh, and that's what we were told this basically was in the beginning. It was something similar to the flu. When you get the flu, you don't go to the doctor unless like you're uh, dehydrating or something like that. You get in the bed and you lay there and you might have chicken noodle soup or you keep a lot of liquids in you and you let your body rest so so that it can do its job on the inside of fighting. I didn't know all the intricacies of that, uh, but that's the way I understood it. And then here we have, uh, we saw the videos where people, you know, are just falling over um, in China. And then all, you know, the numbers were just exponential. Johns Hopkins uh, put out this model, you know, 15 million people were going to die in that model. And then they tried to say, oh, we weren't predicting that after they were called out for it. We were just having a model. Well, what's a model for? How did that impact you when you started to look at these things? I mean, had you, 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 you say you'd done this in the psychiatric business, but, but what about uh, in the, on the medical side of things? Was, was this an issue too, uh, already before what happened uh, with what we were told is coronavirus? Uh, well, I mean, yes, I, I've actually, I branched out from my initial um, research uh, just on psychiatric issues and looked at really all aspects of medicine, um, cancer treatment, vaccines, infectious disease. I had been investigating germ theory just uh, last November before all this happened. So it was quite timely. But when when things started happening in China, like I realized a couple of things. One is that uh, I didn't trust a lot of the information that came out of the official news sources from China uh, because it's so far away and, and uh, you know, our governments are not exactly uh, best friends. And um, I, I was very skeptical of any reports of, of patients, uh, et cetera. So what I did instead was I went and looked at the scientific papers and I found uh, the first paper out of uh, China that had allegedly claimed to identify a new virus and uh, that it and said that it was associated or possibly associated with a with a respiratory illness, and this was based on the initial cohort of people that got sick at the open air food market in Wuhan, China. And when I looked at that paper, I was quite astonished because I saw for the first time the procedure that the scientists used to allegedly identify a virus. And um, I noticed that they call it isolation, and they even write that many times in the title of the article that, you know, a novel coronavirus has been isolated. But when I read through what they actually did, it, I saw that they didn't actually isolate anything. In fact, what they did is took a very messy sample and mixed it with yet more things. So sort of the opposite of isolation. And at first, this really confused me. So I had to really get back to work and do some serious research to figure out what was going on. And, you know, interestingly, I had recalled from back in my college days when I was doing some research in a biology laboratory that some graduate students had remarked about virus papers, that they are in a different language and that they can't understand them and that they don't relate to virologists and they're strange people. And uh, when I started reading these papers, I got a sense of what they were talking about because I saw that some basic uh, practices of scientific experimentation, like, for example, uh, using a control uh, group in order to, or a control experiment in order to make sure that the variable you're looking at is what you're seeing, uh, is not part of these um, experiments at all. So as I looked further, um, I became to a point where I really understood the methods uh, that they were using and saw that essentially they use the same exact methods that has been done 
since approximately 1954 for identifying uh, new viruses. And they've identified thousands. In fact, it seems that you could apply this procedure um, almost at will to identify uh, what you could call a new virus and get a paper published. But it was extremely sloppy science, and it really did not prove anything. So if you'd like me to describe in detail what, what they saw, I certainly can, um, or we could uh, move on uh, if you like. Yeah, no, let people know. Uh, remember, you're talking to some of us who uh, <laughs> we don't know a lot of the terminology. I'm, I've, I've become familiar with the term exosome because of you. Uh, so I understand that, you're, that you described, and I've, I've made, mentioned this to the audience before, that you've described an exosome, which is something that that can be witnessed coming out of the cells of the person's body, and it looks identical to what they call a virus, and it goes through and it begins to clean out toxins. It it, it, it cleans up the mess that, that we have in our bodies, and then uh, later on it deposits in various ways of, of the way we get rid of waste and things of that nature. So I'm familiar with that term. But yeah, tell tell people what they what was discovered in that. Sure. Well, Tim, I'm glad you brought up exosomes because uh, I think that's a very important thing to look at. And and you are correct that exosomes are also uh, little particles that can be seen under an electron microscope, and they are made by our own cells. And in fact, all mammal cells make exosomes and probably plant cells as well. And they're used mostly for communication, uh, like sending a message, like a package from one part of our body to the other. And there's like a specific address on it to target it to the right uh, recipient. And they, so they principally provide communication by the genetic material that they carry. But they have also, as you pointed out, been shown to be able to remove toxins from outside the cells, which obviously is a very helpful function. And when I looked at exosome papers, and by the way, exosomes were discovered much later than viruses, um, only about 30 years ago. And I think what may have happened is that when they originally discovered viruses, that they might have confused it with exosomes, uh, not, not knowing exactly what it was because they didn't have as sophisticated uh, techniques in molecular biology at that time. But if you look for uh, papers with exosomes, what you can see is that they actually take a painstaking uh, process to completely isolate and purify exosomes and can do that successfully. And it's really perplexing to me why they don't do the same procedure with virus particles, because you could simply, you know, find sick people that you think are sick from a virus and take a body fluid of the part of their body that's involved in the illness, right? Like they did for this uh, uh, COVID-19 situation where they took lung fluid from the patients because they had a respiratory illness. And you could just go through this process to isolate the particles right out of that lung fluid into a purified um, uh, solution where there's nothing but the virus particles. And there are standard procedures to do this. It primarily involves uh, filtration, which is very simple just by size because they're so much smaller than everything else. And then using a centrifuge, which is, uh, you know, that thing that spins around really fast, and it can separate things by their density. And this, when this is done in like viruses that infect bacteria that are called bacteriophages, they can do this successfully. And when they isolate exosomes out of a body fluid, like the blood or even the lung fluid, they can do this successfully. And then once they have a purified particle, they can then uh, characterize it, like say what, what proteins are in it. 
Uh, they can take out the genetic material and sequence it as one piece of RNA or DNA and get a specific sequence that they can look at. And then they identify that that comes from this isolated purified particle and they know exactly what the origin is. But what they did with the virus studies is, is very different. They took the lung fluid, which has quite a number of constituents and a lot of sources of genetic material because it has both lung cells and other types of cells from our body. It could have blood cells. It could have immune cells. It also has bacteria and fungi that normally live in our body. And it even probably has exosomes if the person is ill because we, we always express a low level of exosomes at all times. But when we are acutely ill or exposed to a toxin or even have a, a strong psychological reaction, our body increases the amount of exosomes. It's called induction of exosomes. So you would find all those things in the lung fluid. And what they did is that they, they did a, the, a genetic test called a PCR, which can find tiny amounts of pieces of genetic material. And they used a special probe to identify certain sequences that they got from a database or from a computer that says it was, it was a viral sequence. But if you look back at all of the studies that created that database of so-called viral sequences, they were all done by the same procedure. So they never like took a complete purified virus and sequenced it from end to end and then to put those, that sequence in the database. They just had little fragments basically from the same exact experiment. So you don't really know what the original origin of those sequences. But they, they used those sequences and they found a piece of genetic material that matched and then sequenced it completely and said, that it was almost 80% similar to when they did the same process back in 2003 for the SARS virus. And they called that SARS-CoV-1. And they said, since it was almost 80% identical, it's called, the new virus is called SARS-CoV-2 and it must be related. But really, this is quite a stretch because between humans and chimpanzees, we have a uh, 96% uh, sequence identity. And that's much, much closer than 80%. And yet we are very different from chimpanzees. So <laughs> how can you say that these viruses are related based on this 80%? Uh, but also we really don't know the origin of this genetic material because it didn't come from a virus particle. In fact, they've never isolated or purified any virus particle from anyone with this alleged illness. So Instead, what they did beyond that genetic testing, and by the way, the sequences they found in that genetic testing I described are what they're using for the, the main diagnostic test, the PCR test. And that test has never been compared to actually detecting a virus because they've never uh, detected a purified virus from any one person. But what they did to show something under the microscope is they took this lung fluid and they mixed it with a cell culture. And the cell culture that they used in the China study, I believe, was monkey kidney cells called Vero cells. So they basically took foreign cells that had already been starved by giving them a minimal growth medium. Then they added toxic chemicals to those cells, which were primarily antibiotics. And antibiotics have been shown in experiments to induce exosomes. So basically, they created a recipe to create exosomes from those monkey cells. 
Um, so after they uh, mix the cells with the toxic uh, antibiotics and starve them with the minimal growth media, they mixed in some lung fluid from the, the sick individuals. And then they watched those cells grow over several days and saw that the cells began to show damage um, and started dying. And as cells undergo this type of damage, they uh, set off little particles. Basically, like you could think of the cell just kind of disintegrating and breaking apart. So we know that they were, they were making exosomes because we created the recipe. And then this cell damage uh, um, extruded other particles that also looked similar to exosomes and viruses. And they basically had this mix. And then they showed a picture of this mixture under the microscope and pointed to some particles and said that those were the virus. However, there was no confirmatory test uh, because they didn't purify these things so that they could then sequence the genetic material and say that, it, oh, it matches something else or it matches our database. They just had this messy mixture with all kinds of particles and said, well, one of these particles is a virus. And this doesn't really prove uh, anything at all. In fact, I, it was quite astonishing that they say that this is, you know, isolating a virus. Um, how do you isolate something when you mix it with a whole bunch of messy stuff? Exactly. Right? It doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. Now, th now this is China you're talking about doing this, right? Well, this uh, was done, I uh, believe, by a group from Hong Kong, but the study okay. was uh, eventually published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Okay. Well, now, let me ask you this. What, does the, what would somebody like the CDC, what would they do different than what was going on there? Did they, did they do this complete isolation of, of viruses and stuff, or did they kind of mix things up too? Well, the CDC doesn't conduct these type of experiments. They collect epidemiological data. I so, see. you know, like how many people are sick, how many people die, how many people have this illness or that illness. Um, but this uh, same kind of study has been done by several groups. So there was a group in Korea that did the same exact procedure for uh, a patient, just one single patient there. Um, there was uh, a study, I don't think it's been published yet, but a group in Canada has done basically the same procedure and they have not published yet. And then there was one other paper, I can't remember where it's from, but, um, you know, it's been in my slideshow presentations uh, with references, etc. But, but I've looked at dozens of uh, papers claiming to isolate a virus uh, since doing this initial investigation. And what I've seen is that they've done exact, almost exactly the same procedure in every single study. And I eventually learned um, after doing further research and talking to some other people like Stefan Lanka, who's done a lot of uh, research in this area, that this procedure was developed originally in 1954, and it's basically been carried forward. And there's an interesting historical aspect to this, because prior to that, the, the virus hunters had pretty much given up on demonstrating the presence of a virus, because basically what happened is that all they could see are all different kinds of particles, and they were unable to find a predominant particle that was there in numbers as they expected it would be if it was a virus causing disease. You know, they had this theory that there was an unseen type of germ causing illnesses that they couldn't explain by bacteria uh, for quite a while. And then once the electron microscope was invented, and I think it was the late 1920s, 
uh, soon after the the virus hunters started, you know, looking under the electron microscope to try to find the the virus that they thought was causing these illnesses, like like polio, uh, for example, was one illness that they thought it was causing. But um, somehow this procedure passed mustard back then, and it's been utilized ever since. But it, it really does not meet any of the criteria that the germ theorists put forth about how to prove that uh, there there's a virus and that it causes an illness. Well, it, then that leads me to another question. If they can't prove that and it's based off of, of germ theory, um, then it leads to another question. Can a, We know people, I guess, can can exchange germs and bacteria can go back and forth between people. But what about viruses? Can that really, I mean, if our, if our body's actually producing those things to help, you know, aid in our health as part of, I guess, the immune system in, in some form or another, it's fighting off something that's bad for our body. How do we, how in the world are we, pa- how can we pass something on to somebody? That doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, let me ask you, what is the proof that we pass something on to somebody? Yeah, I, that's what I'm asking. Where is the proof for that? Or is this something, is this something when, like when you go to medical school, uh, you, you went here to, you were in the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina, I assume, unless you took it from somewhere else. But no, you, it was Charleston. Okay, Charleston. Okay. So you, you go to school and I'm assuming they teach you all this stuff in a textbook and they give you all this stuff and you... Does nobody ever question these kind of things or is it just, okay, well, you said it, you're the doctor, you're the teacher, it must be true. Or or were there ever anybody who who questions these kinds of things to say, can you show me how this is passed from one person to another? Well, you know, you you actually don't have to go to medical school to be taught this because we're all taught this as as babies, basically, right? When we're when we say where we're told to stay away from the sick member of the household, when we're told to cover our mouth when we sneeze and cough, that we'll get somebody sick. So this is well ingrained uh, before we're you know even of age as adults, and in medical school. Um, you, you're right. We, you don't really have the opportunity to question everything because they inundate you with so much material that you have to spend every waking hour practically consuming this material to take it all in. And none of it is about thinking like they never uh, give you a study and then discuss it and critique it. So when they taught us about germ theory, they mentioned the importance of Koch's postulates, which are the set of rules that the germ theory proponents themselves laid down about how you prove that a germ exists and that it causes an illness. But they didn't show us even one experiment where this was proved for any particular illness at all. They just told us that this is the case. And then they went on to teach us about every infectious illness that there is, and they told us what germ causes it. Um, and just basically taught it as fact. And, you know, I'm sure that you could have questioned it, but you wouldn't have had any time to do any research. And most likely they would have just, you know, kind of put you in your place and moved on to the next topic or said, you know, we don't really have time for this or come visit me in my office hours or something like that. But medical school was not a place to question and discuss and analyze. It was a place to be fed massive amounts of information, be expected to memorize it and regurgitate it back on command. And you're also expected to basically be obsequious um, and do whatever you're told. So basically, it's kind of like uh, elementary and junior high and high school. It's basically indoctrination. It's not education at all, right? I I think that's quite a fair assessment. 
Okay. All right. Well, um, one of the other things that I want to ask you in doing that is you gave some examples in some previous interviews, and I think it'd be helpful for our audience to hear them too. One of them that you mentioned was uh, Spanish flu. Now, I'm going to kind of lead you on in that and to say you also spoke about your perception of what was going on. What was bringing on this sickness in the people, the virus, if you will? What was causing those exosomes to come out of the people, in your opinion? What were those? And then second, there were there was a, a, a thing you talked about with the Spanish flu and tests that were done there, because this goes right along with us talking about them transferring. Can you speak to both of those? Maybe tell us your assessment of, of what you saw there going on in China and even other places around what you think may have been going on and then move into the Spanish flu issue? Yeah, sure. Well, there are almost no studies like experimental studies that really test uh, contagion or passing um, an illness from one person to another. But at the time, right after the Spanish flu, they the U.S. Public Health Service actually commissioned a study done in Boston. Actually, it was three studies. And they had a group of people who were ill with the Spanish flu, and they had a group of 100 volunteers. And they tried three different ways to pass this illness from the the sick people to the healthy people. Um, They, you know, had them cough up a bunch of phlegm and they got snot and they even swabbed their eyeballs. And then they put that into the healthy people's throat and nose and eyes. And 100 people, not one of them got ill. Uh, Then they tried injecting those body fluids into the healthy people and no one got ill. And then they tried... Uh, having extremely close contact, like, you know, get in people's personal space and, and breathe into each other's mouths. And once again, not one person got ill. So they basically proved that there was no uh, transmission of the Spanish flu, at least uh, by any kind of contact with someone aside from blood um, or, or some other crazy route. But even when they injected the body fluids, right, they still, no one got sick. I think that's the strongest study by far that I've ever seen um, looking at this issue, and it showed no contagion whatsoever. And I also think it's um, important to point out that in some other cultures, like in Chinese medicine and in Ayurvedic medicine, which is from India, they have no conception of contagion. They, they've observed you know, people get sick in the same ways that we have, but they never thought that people passed it to one another. So this is really something that has, has no evidence. Uh, it's just something that we've been told is true and we've, we've come to believe. And that's why it's very, very difficult for people to question it. And it's, it's one of the most common uh, questions that I get asked and I see people struggling to understand it. But the most important part of it to realize is that if there is no evidence of a virus that causes disease, then what could you possibly be passing from one person to another? Right. It just doesn't yeah. make sense. There has to be another explanation for what we see. Sure. Well, there's there's the thought, too. Um, and this was something that I discussed with Kate before. And that is we refer to something as the flu season. And this was very interesting to me. And it made a whole lot of sense. We since we, we talk about uh, spring cleaning our houses. Right. Uh, we don't call it winter cleaning. We don't call it fall cleaning. We call it spring cleaning. We do it once a year. We clean it out. Um, we we when we plant, we do it at certain times a year, and then we harvest. 
And I'm more along the lines, I've been convinced that it's more of a, a, an issue with our bodies, keeping our bodies healthy, than it is people passing something on from, from themselves to us. Uh, I think they call it uh, something with the terrain. I, I forget the specific terminology. But it seems to me that we get we have a flu season that happens at a certain time of the year, and it seems like it's when people are not out in the sun, they're in from the cold, all this kind of stuff, and they see and some people come down with it very severely. Some even die. You mentioned that before uh, from the flu. Uh, some get moderately sick. Some people don't get sick at all. And so it seems to me there's something to that kind of thing that our bodies are like I don't know biological clock. I guess certain things that are going on that uh, that work to to keep our our bodies healthy and clean that by cleaning some of this stuff out is that would that be an accurate thing to say or, or am i a little off on that no no you're you're right on track and i want to uh, elaborate a little bit more but you know you made me think of a very good point because you know i've i've spent uh, time in the past working in hospitals and emergency departments right and during flu season a lot of people with the flu come into the er but you you hardly ever see healthcare workers get sick from it right so they would be sick all the time because they're exposed to patient after patient coughing up all kinds of stuff right in their face. But what, hap- what happens is, and I think a good way to understand this is that, you know, God has created this world and all the beings with these beautiful cycles. And so we have the seasonal cycles, right? We have the sky clock. Uh, that is the you know only true measure of time that helps guide us through this, and then we have biological cycles, right? You have the the leaves turning uh, color in the fall and falling off, and then regrowing in the spring when we hit the growing season, as you mentioned. Well, we human beings also have biological cycles, and um, everybody is certainly familiar with our day night sleep weight cycles. Uh, which occur, you know, on a 24-hour basis, but there are also seasonal uh, cycles that we go through. And so this, you can envision the flu and cold season as an annual renewal cycle. And, you know, we use our nose and mouth and upper airway and lungs to take in air that that uh, helps us metabolize um, the energy source in our body, and it's necessary for our existence. But when we breathe in that air, there's other things in it. Uh, There are all kinds of contaminants, and some of these are natural, right, like uh, pollens from the trees and plants, for example. And then many of them are man-made, and many of them are toxic. So all kinds of uh, smog, uh, pollution from geoengineering, from industrial waste, um, from agricultural spraying applications, um, carbon monoxide from our heating systems, right? There's just all kinds of stuff, dust, dirt, debris, uh, you know, everything. And we have these uh, sophisticated mechanisms inside of our airway to filter these things out so that they don't get into our lungs, even though some do, uh, but most gets, gets retained. But these things stay in the tissue to some degree, right? And they cause damage to the inside of our, our airway, our nose and our throat and sinuses and all those things. And depending on how much exposure an individual gets and how well their body is to uh, get rid of that stuff, do its own detoxification, um, things build up. And on an annual basis, when we get a cold or a flu, it's really a way that our body can 
completely get rid of those things and repair the damage to those tissues and build new tissue there uh, so that we can basically continue to perform that process. It's just like if you think about the air filter in your car um, that you or in your heating system, right? You have to change that periodically uh, because it gets all gunked up. And the same thing happens to our airway. So when we go through having an illness like this, our body recruits all of the necessary uh, microorganisms, uh, which actually come from our own body uh, for the most part, and um, they go there to clean up this area. And unfortunately, they make it a little bit uncomfortable when they do this process, just like it's a bit uncomfortable to do your spring cleaning once a year, sure. right? You, you got to get down on your hands and knees and really scrub. And so the bacteria secretes some factors that cause swelling in the tissue and secretions. And what that does is it increases the blood flow so it could bring nutrients for repair and remove the waste uh, products and toxins. And the secretions are the way to get the toxic materials out of our body. So when our nose is dripping um, and we're sneezing, right, that's our body purging toxic materials that have built up over the year. So really, this is the purpose of these illnesses. Now, sometimes we can be in a state where we're in really poor health uh, or our toxic burden is really, really high that it takes a major effort to get rid of it. And when we're in these vulnerable states, which always occur as a result of our own uh, uh, ability to take care of for ourselves. In other words, we did something to cause these, you know, maybe we ate too much fast food or processed foods, or, you know, we smoked a, a pack of Marlboros a day, or we just are poorly nourished and our bodies don't have all of the right nutrients to, to stay healthy, then we can get actually quite sick from these and even die. And, you know, just a couple of years ago, the CDC recorded something like 80,000 deaths in the United States from the flu. So, so I think, you know, this is a pretty much an explanation for what happens with the flu. And since we're all following the same annual cycle, we all tend to be sick around the same time of year. And I think sometimes when people are in close proximity, there's some kind of mechanism that we do, our bodies do communicate with each other, like some kind of empathic mechanism. Uh, and this is similar to what we see, for example, when uh, women are very close in their relationships and their menstrual cycles match up and synchronize, right? Now, no one would say that that was caused by passing a germ between the women, <laughs> but there, there's some other mechanism. And it could be uh, through empathy, like that we feel what other people feel around us, and then we mimic that. Um, it could be through exosomes that we put out, because it's been shown that we that exosomes do come out of our body, uh, like in, through our lung fluid or our out-breath to some degree. So those could exchange genetic materials and remind other people it's time to go through the annual renewal process. Um, or it could be some other mechanism, uh, like through electromagnetic signals, for example, because um, it's well known that our bodies uh, use electricity, uh, like we have EKGs where you could see a tracing. And anytime there's a flow of electricity, there are electric and magnetic fields, and those uh, contain information and can influence other electric and magnetic fields. So since the assumption has always been that there are germs causing these, there haven't been any funding or any studies looking at these other mechanisms. But uh, I'm sure that if we did, we would get certainly get to the bottom of why it seems like uh, people tend to get sick together. 
Yeah, well, I, I think so, too. But then that would sort of um, be a little rain on the parade of the Rockefellers and people who have established, you know, the current medical situation and, and push out natu- naturopathy. They're trying to, you know, get all of that out. Even even those who promote that, uh, you know, this is all about money for them. So I don't know who we're going to get to fund that stuff. Maybe we got somebody uh, like yourself who who is honest and say, well, OK, well, this is making some sense. I'd like to fund that kind of study. I'd like to find fund that kind of research to find out. Am I being lied to when I go to the doctor? Maybe there's somebody who's very wealthy who'll fund that. We'd we'd certainly appreciate that. But you made mention, I remember in one of the interviews, because you were asked, you know, we saw some video from China. There were some people who were falling over, you know, just like they're fine one minute and the next minute they're fell. And what amaze, what it continues to amaze me is kind of like in America, you know, a guy can be beat being beaten to a pulp by five other people and everybody pulls out their cell phone. Nobody goes to help the guy. And it's like this person falls over in front of him and everybody says, Oh, well, let's just film that, you know, and it's, it's bizarre. But, but what was, what do you, what is your take on that? What do you think started all of this? I mean, I just, I, you, you made some comments. Kate has made some comments. We've had Mark Steele on, who's a weapons expert over in the UK. We've had him on. They've made their assessments. But you seem to have an idea maybe or at least um, some, a, a theory as to what might have happened over there in China and, and has made its way in some other places. Well, um, I actually think that this whole pandemic uh, has been planned for many years, and uh, there's lots of evidence to support that. And I think that it's essentially a major um, psychological operation. So in other words, there's actually no virus or new disease uh, that's caused any problems. But there's basically been uh, this campaign of disinformation um, and propaganda. And um, you see that around the world, virtually all of the governments acted in concert with the same exact policies. And that's a situation that is never seen. It's completely unprecedented. I mean, every nation is supposed to be a sovereign nation to make their own decisions of how they approach a crisis. But in this case, everyone did the same exact thing virtually at the same exact time. So that tells me that it was coordinated at a higher level uh, than the governments. And I think, um, you know, we most people are no longer naive enough to believe that the people who are elected in office are really the ones making all the decisions. Uh, There are, you know, interests uh, well above them that are directing them in the important policies. And I think this is what we've uh, witnessed in this case. And I believe that the reason that they orchestrated this fake pandemic is for the purpose of uh, scaring people into voluntarily relinquishing their freedoms and rights, which was extremely successful because people uh, were so afraid and they willingly um, gave up their freedoms, their freedom to leave their home, their freedom to assemble and attend their church, um, and uh, their freedom of speech has also been encroached upon. Um, I know that uh, you mentioned Kate before, and she and I have both been heavily uh, censored um, in our attempts to just get out uh, scientific information. No, I know. I, I know uh, that these things are going on. And uh, this is what, you know, at the Sons of Liberty, we talk about uh, bringing justice. That's really part of the issue. If we don't bring justice, we don't guard liberty. And so we've seen over and over, we've allowed uh, corporations to do things that are uh, immoral, 
uh, unlawful. We've seen the politicians do it. We've seen other people in authority to do these kinds of things. We've seen people even outside our country fund some of this stuff, and yet no justice is brought. They're just left. You know, the politicians will use it to get your vote. They'll talk about how bad this person is and, oh, we need to bring justice to them. And they're uh, crooked this and, uh, you know, guilty as hell and all these kinds of things is what they say. And yet... They don't bring any justice. And so it seems to me they're allowing this kind of thing to come in. And we allow it because we keep putting the same rascals back in there uh, to, do, to do what they're doing. Now, with that said, you, you may mention, the pe- I've never seen anything like it either, and I'm, I'm 51. I, I've never seen anything like this in the United States where you have entire states on a lockdown. You've got basically a, a, cur- a martial law curfew put in. Um, you've got people frightened that they're putting these masks on, which we know they're really more detrimental. And the flip-flopping of uh, the World Health Organization on that to say healthy people shouldn't wear the mask in April. And then now in June, they're saying, oh, healthy people should wear them. We've got more information. And I already know that it causes really some bad problems for people. They make my kids wear them at Chick-fil-A. Uh, and and I'm, I'm thinking, you're setting yourself up for a lawsuit, aren't you, by requiring that of your of your people. But where do you see all that going? Do you do you see it just going away because we're being told there's going to be a second wave of this? In fact, I was reading today uh, that some people say we're already into the second wave of this, even though it's summertime, which is a little strange. Yeah, well, you know, if you basically manufacture a crisis, then you can modify the rules and uh, change how you, um, you know, basically carry out that plan. And so it's very hard to predict uh, exactly what's going to go. But no, I don't believe that they're going to walk back any restrictions, really. I think they may uh, lessen up some things, like sort of like take one step forward and then a quarter step back and then another step forward. So they give us a temporary reprieve, for example, from being locked down in our homes, which they've done in many places. They allow businesses to reopen, but at a capacity that they can't sustain their business. Uh, For example, in some areas, restaurants are able to reopen, but they can only have 25% of their capacity. Now, you know that these small businesses operate on a very slim margin, and there's no way that they can sustain a business model under those kind of restrictions. And I feel that, you know, they've already told us what is coming down the pipe. It's just a matter of when they implement it. So when they have the second wave, I think then they're going to go hardcore on contact tracing. And to me, this is one of the scariest uh, possible things because they're basically going to be able to monitor everything you do and they're going to be able to use it for whatever purpose suits them. And if we look carefully already at the plans, like there have been some people who have Um, gone through the training to become a contact tracer. And what they've found out is basically that um, they've established facilities for children and that they plan to take children out of people's homes, right, against their will and put them in these uh, facilities uh, separate from their family. And I don't know what is going to happen to the children there, but I do not think it's going to be any good. And I certainly am not going to participate. I mean, I haven't participated in any restrictions at all so far. And I'm not going to going forward, uh, whatever the consequences. But, you know, I think it was Hitler who said that if you want to get complete control over a society, you remove their freedoms a little bit at a time. 
And that's what we've been going through here. And in my opinion, this is going to continue until we essentially have no freedom left. No, I tend to agree with you on that. And uh, I've said very clearly, uh, you come in to give a mandatory vaccine, you're going to take my kids from me over something. You know, the, the Bible tells us in Leviticus 13, it tells us how to quarantine people. You don't quarantine healthy people, you quarantine sick people. And even determining whether they're sick, you know, the Bible would say, you know, you do certain tests on the skin uh, in the issue of leprosy. And then once it's determined you actually have leprosy, okay, then you isolate that person. But you don't isolate everybody that's around them. You only do the people who actually are sick. And now we've, we've got this thing. Uh, we had some families here in this first wave that they, that, you know, that they wanted to take their kids and all of these kinds of things. I was watching a report in uh, Washington State. They already have a, I mean, it's like a, it's like a camp. And what's going on there, they've, they've put up a, a barbed wire and razor wire and all this stuff. And then they have these little um, uh, like trailers out there that they say this will be used in the event we have uh, another outbreak of this sort. And it's like you guys couldn't even fill up the hospitals and the make you didn't even have any people going to makeshift hospitals. You guys were tearing them down in Seattle. You're tearing them down up in New York. You didn't even have anybody come in there, and yet they're putting all of this kind of stuff in play. I think it's just setting up for another, not like we haven't been under some fascism anyway, uh, and some socialism too in this country, but it's like it's setting up for like a complete totalitarian rule by 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 the invisible enemy, which isn't a virus, it's really has a face. It's got a lot of faces I mean, on it. I mean, I think that's what I hear you saying, that, that this is a push towards that. Yeah. Well, Tim, you know, you described that the facility was surrounded with fencing and razor wire. They don't put that around a health facility. That's, that's a prison. So essentially what they are, have constructed is a, a, akin to a concentration camp or a field prison. And um, that tells you what the plan is. Yeah, well, this is right beside a prison, actually. Um, so it's the fencing and stuff. You could see some of it was rusted. Uh, it's been there for some time, but then they had some, it looked like they had brand new razor wire on there. And you're just like, okay, I'm not, you know, I was born on a day it wasn't yesterday. And this doesn't look like someplace you take sick people uh, and things of that nature. So uh, I've always said if they come to do that for my family, if they're coming for mandatory vac- vaccination or anything else, you know, I got a lead and copper vaccination that's guaranteed to work uh, for what it's intended for. And I think that's the defensive mode that we become in. I think that's why we have the Second Amendment. It's to secure a free state. This is a tyranny uh, beyond anything that I've seen. I wanted to ask you one more question. We've got about uh, four minutes or so here. What do you think about the theory that uh, 5G may be having some effect on our bodies as far as poisoning cells and producing these exosomes, which in essence cause us to be ill. We're ill in that. What do do you think about that at all? Well, uh, let me clarify that exosomes don't cause us to be ill. They are a response to illness, right? Just like other things are a response to illness. So there would be some, something causing an illness, like most likely a toxin, and then our body would create exosomes to respond to that. So I don't think there's really any conclusive evidence that 5G has already made anyone sick with any kind of illness that we're talking about here. But there certainly is a lot of scientific evidence that 5G could be uh, causing a lot of health problems in the future. What I think is really the most interesting thing about the 5G infrastructure is that 
during the pandemic restrictions, when all the companies shut down their operations and only essential workers were allowed to continue, somehow installing the 5G network has, was considered an essential operation. And this doesn't make sense because we already have a completely functional telecommunications system. And even more exaggerated was the fervor with which they were doing these installations. I've heard several workers for Verizon talking about how they were having shifts around the clock and trying to do these installations at an extremely rapid pace. So I think that it has some future use in this control system, but I would only be really speculating to to tell you what, what I think that might be. Sure. Okay. That's fair enough. I, I've had some guys, one guy, he's a friend of mine uh, up in the northern part of the country, and uh, he's talked about being a roofer, and he's been up there when the guys are putting it on. He did some readings on it. He said, Tim, you know, I'd come home, and he says, I'm fatigued beyond my regular roofing. He says, just working around the stuff. And um, and then we've had other people who've said some of the similar things. So I know there's some some um, things there as far as the the frequencies these things operate. They're, they're, I think they operate from like three megahertz to like a hundred gigahertz. So there's a wide range of stuff that can be used there. And uh, and of course, what we're told is well, they're using these other things. But there's been a number of doctors and scientists who've said well, we haven't done enough. What would be? Um, we got a couple of minutes here. What would be some things that you would encourage people with as far as taking care of their own bodies? You, you mentioned that, that oftentimes we become ill because we haven't taken. What would be uh, some quick bullet point things that you would encourage people to do to take care of their own bodies? Yeah, sure. Great question. Uh, first thing is uh, most people don't drink enough water and they don't drink clean water. I recommend uh, distilled or reverse osmosis filtered water to remove all the toxic materials. And you should drink uh, one quart for per 60 pounds of body weight daily as a minimum. And that in itself will take care of quite a number of things and definitely substantially lower your risk of a heart attack or any similar type of disease. Um, and then secondly, I would encourage people to eat clean food. In other words, not processed food, not food that's grown with pesticides and herbicides like glyphosate, but food in its natural form and grown locally where you know how it's grown or organic uh, or grow it yourself. And, uh, and then thirdly, that you do some kind of cleansing or detoxification, uh, which most simply could be increasing the frequency of your bowel movements, which you could do a number of ways. You could do a procedure once a week where you take castor oil or do an enema. Um, you can do it other ways. You can take Epsom salt baths. You can go to an infrared sauna. Uh, there are many things you can do, but you need to have some way of getting these toxins out of your body. And then lastly, I would say, Many, many people that I work with are deficient in two nutrients, uh, collagen and cholesterol. And these are both really important uh, to build your body and support your endocrine system and give you energy and repair your brain. And so I would encourage you to eat more foods that are high in collagen like bone broth and high in cholesterol like liver and lobster. All right. Dr. Kaufman, we appreciate your time. If you guys want to check out Dr. Kaufman, you can do so at andrewkaufmanmd.com. And you can also check out his YouTube channel by his name, Andrew Kaufman. Just look that up on YouTube and subscribe him on there. And uh, you guys have a great day. We'll talk to you in 23 hours. See ya.